Hello, basketball world. It's Eric Gormley from PlaySight. Welcome to The Edge. Each week, we'll be bringing you interviews from the brightest minds and most interesting people in hoops, breaking down their careers, jobs, stories, and ultimately finding out what gives them the edge each time their team steps out onto the court. We hope you enjoy a behind-the-scenes look into each one of our guests. Let's get to the interview. Hi. Welcome to The Edge Podcast. I'm Eric Gormley, and on this episode, we spoke to Seth Greenberg, current basketball analyst for ESPN, and my colleague Matt Gibson at PlaySite. Seth gave us a behind-the-scenes look into his playing days at FDU and five-star basketball camp, how he got his start in coaching, and who inspired him along the way. We touched on a variety of topics, including the NCAA's new name, image, and likeness policy, the transfer rule, and the G League select team, and what that means for college basketball. We also discussed Seth's head coaching experiences at Long Beach State, South Florida, and Virginia Tech, and who the best dunker he ever coached was. Let's get to the interview. Uh, Welcome to the Edge podcast. Today we have on two-time ACC Coach of the Year and current ESPN basketball analyst Seth Greenberg and my colleague at PlaySite, Matt Gibson. Seth, how are you doing? Any better? I couldn't stand it considering the situation. So look, I've got my health, my family's got their health, and I'm really thankful for the doctors, the nurses, the hospital workers, the fire department, the EMTs, the people that move our food chain, all the people that are enabling us to continue to at least move forward in these really difficult times. There are so many people out there right now that are making sacrifices for others. And I actually, I talked to a college team yesterday, and it, you know, it's a great example for all of us in terms of being a good teammate. I mean, how can you not make good decisions on a daily basis when you've got these selfless people that are risking their lives every single day for others? And, uh, you know, I I told this team, if you're going to complain about playing time or shot selection or or anything else, like think back to this day and all the people that are giving up so much of themselves for others. And uh, maybe uh, there's a great lesson being learned here. Absolutely. And, and, you know, being in New York City myself, I can definitely feel that, you know, every time we step outside. So, um, you know, th- those are great words. And you know, I think really important to, um, you know, advocate for right now. Um, where are you at right now? Are you in uh, Connecticut? Yeah, I'm in uh, the main streets of Avon, Connecticut, uh, which is about 20 minutes from Bristol. It's a little suburban community with uh, it's been uh, it's been fine. I mean, people have been really respectful. People wear their masks. People really are very cognizant of of people next to them. I'm walking about 10 miles a day. I've lost 12 pounds and uh, I don't fit into any any of my suits anymore. But besides that, it's uh, I'm much healthier right now, for sure. It's funny, you know, I think a lot of people are feeling the same way. They're, you know, really making sure that they're staying healthy during this time, exercising, uh, all that good stuff. so, Seth, I, I've been listening to some podcasts that you've been on recently. You've, you've been on with quite a few NBA. Well, what was that? You're that bored. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I just, you know, we're, we're hoopers. So, you know, when I see that you're on with a, a Leonard Hamilton or Dwayne Casey, Tom Izzo, Rick Carlisle, that's, you know, that's golden content for, for basketball people to listen to. What's the sentiment among, you know, some of these top level coaches on coming back, how to come back? I think most of the coaches are in agreement with the doctors. Look, you know, it, this is real simple. I know what I don't know. And that's the sign of someone who's, I think, intelligent. People that don't know what they don't know are dangerous. And uh, we've got these brilliant people. We've got these doctors. We've got these researchers. We've got these scientists. Uh, they will tell us the direction we need to go. Now, you know, the NBA and college, I think, are two different 
situations. But uh, look, we all want to come back. I mean, that's that's just the way it is. The NBA wants to come back. Major League Baseball wants to come back. Major League Soccer wants to come back. College football wants to come back. Want and should probably you have to you have to evaluate the situation. Are we in a situation to do that? Is the science say that we can handle it, not mitigate it, but make sure it's a safe environment? So, uh, I my gut feeling is after reading the stuff from Woj the other day, uh, I think the NBA I think the NBA will come back. I think they'll put themselves in a bubble. I think that they will uh, they have the ability to do the testing. The interesting thing is how they come back. Uh, there are teams that have no chance for the playoffs. What's the sense of them coming back? What's the sense of the risk reward for that, except financially? Because if those players, do, those teams don't come back, do those players get paid? Do those teams get their share of the television money? Uh, I, I think that that's going to be the big question. And I know they had that vote the other day. Uh, the NBA practice facilities are opening up as a voluntary basis. So, I mean, you, you, you see that a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And, and they've got the resources and the financial resources to do the testing and, and do what, even if they have to uh, isolate uh, and create this bubble, even with the families, they have the money to do that. I think Major League Baseball uh, has come up with a plan. The interesting thing will be obviously college athletics, uh, depending on what happens. Look, we might have an antivirus. We might have a, a vaccine. Who knows? So I, I don't like to be forward thinking. I don't like to speculate. I, th- I don't think there's anything more ignorant that a a coach standing oh we're gonna play in and 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 september no you don't know that we want to play in september and we hope that you know we find a way to to play in september but you know to make some type of prediction is uh i i i'd be embarrassing myself i have a hard enough time speaking english yet alone figuring out what's going on with this freaking virus (laughs) oh definitely and you know despite the tournament and the season being shut down early. It's been a pretty busy offseason for the college hoops game. Um, one of the main things is obviously the new name, image, and likeness policy um, being implemented with the NCAA. What are your thoughts on this? Um, do you think this will create any type of dissension among players in the locker room having more value um, from a monetary standpoint than others? Yeah, I think it's going to be difficult to, to, to navigate it. And it's real simple. Everyone thinks that there are two misconceptions in basketball in general. Everyone thinks if you're a good player, there's a rite of passage to get, you're going to play in the NBA. That's a joke. The NBA is an exclusive club for very, very few. Most guys don't make it. And when they, if, they, if they're not ready to compete and, and understand uh, that they're not where they need to be and they're probably a role player, they won't stick around very long if they make it. And that's, that's a basically, a, and we'll get into that later, a formula for disaster. And the NIL, everyone thinks, well, everyone's going to make millions of dollars. Well, it doesn't work that way. Where, where, where student athletes are going to make money is through uh, social media. And you're going to see the, the, the high majors, the Kentucky, the Kansases, the Dukes. All right. A guy commits to one of those schools, and you can hear John Calpari say, you know, uh, Seth Greenberg just committed to uh, – he's a great follow. Follow him on, uh, on, uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Well, then they're going to get a million followers, and then they're going to be able to monetize their social media as influencers. But if you think, especially in the economy right now, you think people just throw money around, you're crazy. You, you think that, you know, maybe a restaurant, but, you know, these restaurants have been closed for months. Uh, or, you know, might have a player come in and do an appearance, maybe. But the, the, the idea that – yeah, Zion Williamson would have made money. He would have made money off his Instagram account. He would have made money off his Twitter account. 
He might have gotten a shoe deal. I'm not sure what's going on with that, how the NCAA is looking at that. If the university has a shoe deal, can players individually have shoe deals? I, you know, I don't have the information on that. But it's not going to be like you get $1,000 and you get $5,000. It's not going to be that way. Very few guys are going to be able to monetize their name, image, license. I think there will be clinics. I think got, people have a chance to do camps. I think you'll have some semblance in some communities a chance to do you know, minimal appearances. But let me ask you that. So, you know, we had, I did an interview with Rick Chapman the other day. He said, Rick Chapman goes to Kentucky. He's a freshman. He's a Kentucky kid. He's Mr. Basketball. He's, you know, he's Rex Chapman, right? He comes into a veteran locker room. Rex Chapman probably, to be honest with you, in, in that state probably would have more opportunities in returning players that were the, the focus, the focal point of their team. If you don't think that's going to create a problem in the locker room, you're crazy. And, and it's easy to say, well, it works in the NBA. The NBA guys make millions of dollars. Problem is there's so much static. I mean, shot selection is an issue in in your locker room. Role is an issue in your locker room. Playing time is an issue in your locker room. You don't think money's gonna be an issue? The static around players is so great right now that it will be an issue. And then you've got the agents on top of that that are now gonna take shots like this guy in, that, that, that has, has, is advising Matt McClung. I don't know if you guys saw that the other day, taking shots at Pat Ewing. The closest that dude's ever gotten to the NBA is maybe getting a guy in the summer league. He's talking about one of the top 50 players in the country. He's not letting him play his game. Like, back to club, yeah, well, you know, I had 11 interviews. Yeah, the NBA guys don't even want to interview now anyway. They can't get – so you know what? They're interviewing guys. He's not a pro. He's a nice player. He's a good player. You got this guy taking shots of Pat Ewing? Well, you're going to have the same issue of agents who are trying to monetize their guys, pitting player against player to try to get deals. On a college level, that's going to be – really hard to deal with as a college coach. Yeah, it, it adds to an already daunting responsibility list for coaches having to deal with just the, the age of um, college basketball right now. And there's, a, there's a lot of things that you, you just said that I really want to get to, but I also want to go back um, for our listeners and give them a little bit of background info on um, how you got your start in basketball as a player, as a coach. You know, when did you develop a love for the game of basketball? Uh, I don't remember the time I didn't have it. I guess the, the, where it resonated is my dad played for the legendary Claire B at OIU. And Coach B used to go around in the summers and visit uh, his former players because he used to run a camp called Kutcher's Camp, which was way, 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 way back in the day. And uh, I remember sitting in the, uh, in, the, in the downstairs, listening to Coach B tell stories uh, and reminisce with my dad. And... Uh, it was just fascinating. Now, obviously, uh, my dad's passion for the game used to take us around when he was still playing uh, just three or three and four and four with his, his old guys who happened to be some of like the great older players in the history of the game, in history of college basketball. Got him said, Adam, I met God, all these really good old time players. This is 100 years ago. So I guess that's where it started. And then it resonated when I went to the five star basketball camp when I was uh, going into the sophomore year of high school. And I listened to Uvie Brown give a lecture. And it was just mesmerizing. Uh, and then I became part of the five-star family after that as a, as a coach and developed my coaching career through the contacts in, that I, I developed, uh, that I made there. But uh, look, I mean, you got to get – you shouldn't play the game unless you're lost in the game and in love with the game. And uh, I was very fortunate to be exposed to it at an early age and just fell in love with the game of basketball. And uh, 
you know, it's been incredibly good to me. And, uh, you know, it's gave me an opportunity to get a free education. Uh, you know, I, I gave me a career in coaching uh, for over 30 years. And now it's opened up doors to give me a, a career in broadcasting. I'm far from a broadcaster, I can tell you that. I'm not a journalist. I'm just a, I'm just a fired basketball coach talking ball. Now, Coach, you know, obviously back Oh, man, here. I'm here. I'm here, baby. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the recruiting process back when you were a player was was a little bit different. Um, but you, you touched on broadcasting. You know, you certainly had your sights set on that, studying that for four years at FDU. Um, you know, what made you choose FDU as a, as a student athlete back then? And, and kind of, you know, what uh, made you choose that potential career path? Yeah, uh, yeah, my brother was a really good player. He was very, very heavily recruited all over the country. Left me Brazil. He had to play for George Rabbit in Washington State. I mean, he was he was one of the top guards in, in New York. But uh, you know, I, I wanted a coach. In Alabama, the coach of Fairleigh Dickinson was actually Bobby Knight's assistant coach at Army. Was uh, UB Brown's high school coach in New Jersey. Coach Mike Shashevsky. Uh, he was one of the innovators of volume and defense. Uh, he was a great, great teacher. He was a tough son of a bitch. Uh, you know, I thought my my name was Blank Sucker when I was playing for him. Uh, but uh, but he, he was a terrific, terrific coach. And I knew I wanted a coach. Uh, it was about you an know, hour and a half from my home. My, my parents were just recently divorced, and I thought it would be important to be in a, in a good region. Uh, and they played good level of basketball. And more importantly, my education, I was a communications major, uh, but the greatest education I received was Coach Babo in terms of, uh, you know, teaching basketball, teaching defense, basically. Uh, he was an incredible teacher uh, uh, on the defensive end of the floor. And uh, he did, you know, that was probably the best classroom I, I, I was in. Uh, and the broadcast journalism was just, uh, you know, if you if you coach, you got to be able to communicate. Part of communication is send or receive feedback. Part of communication is be able to craft the message in a way that people understand it. And you know, I felt if you're going to go into coaching, coaching is really about communication. Uh, it's about relationships, about trust, but it's also about communication. If you have relationships and trust, you got to be able to communicate. You also got to be able to communicate to boosters and uh, recruits and, and your team and. Uh, you know, you've got to be able to be organized and be able to present a message in a manner that people can digest it. So I thought it was a, it was a, a good major. And, you know, for me, uh, not as much for getting into broadcasting, although as I got into coaching, I thought my end game would be that. Came a little earlier than I expected because I didn't expect to get fired at Virginia Tech. But uh, it's, it's, I've been very, very fortunate. Uh, I don't use anything I learned to Fairly Dickens in terms of broadcasting on TV. Reese Davis asked a question, I answer it. Uh, I have an observation, I make it. When Jay Will was with me, if he said something I disagreed, I would, I would state my case. I, 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 to me, my whole thing about television for me is I'm sitting in a bar talking ball and just happen to be in front of a camera. Uh, that's, that's kind of my mindset with what I do. Absolutely, and, and we're big FDU fans over here. We, we recently had um, Bruce Hamburger on a webinar we did, kind of like a coach's clinic. Uh, Bruce is great, dude. Yeah. He's a- he, he, was, he was amazing and, you know, obviously has, has years of experience. Harvard on a hackensack, we call it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you know, jumping right into, into coaching at Columbia after your career, you know, finished up at FDU, um, 
you know, was it was it your time at FDU um, as a player that kind of made you realize you wanted to get into coaching? And and were there any mentors or, or coaches that you know kind of played a role in in taking you down that path? Well, being a five star made me want to get into coaching. Uh, that first lecture that I heard Yuri Brown uh, give, uh, the impact it had on me uh, made me want to get into coaching. Uh, being around that environment uh, as a player for three years and then as counselor and then a coach and then a clinician and a head coach, uh, that made me want to get into coaching. Uh, and when you think about the people that walked through those doors at Five Star back in those days, whether it was players or whether it was, you know, or it was Moses Malone, Michael Jordan, uh, LeBron James, uh, James Ward. I mean, like the players that came to the camp every year, it was just it was incredible. Uh, but the clinicians, the coaches, the Patinos, the Cal Perry, myself, uh, Chuck Daly, Ruby Brown, uh, you know, the, the list of former, you know, Ryan Rothstein coached the NBA, Richie Adubato coached the NBA, uh, Mike Fratello coached the NBA, uh, you know, the, the list of, of coaches, uh, it was a cradle of coaches. And it just, it, it, you know, being in that environment, uh, you know, I never wanted to, once, once I got to five-star, there wasn't anything else I ever wanted to do but, but, but have a career coach. Now, when I got into coaching, it wasn't, I had no idea. When I got that job at Columbia, I got the job at Columbia the day I graduated college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't by a text message. Uh, and, uh, and I never even asked what I was getting paid. And then when I went from Columbia to Pitt, I never asked what I was getting paid. I had no idea. I mean, uh, money was never, never the objective. You know, things have changed now in coaching, but not, none of us originally got into coaching for the money. And uh, we got in coaching because we love the game and we, and we love to teach the game and we love to impact others and we love to be around the game. Like, I, you know, when I was coaching, it was never a day of work. Definitely. And, and you know, if you were to come out in, in this day and age as a student athlete, are there any coaches um, specifically that, that you would have loved to, you know, have played for? Yeah, I don't like to single out guys. I mean, I have I have really good friends in the business, but I mean, look, why wouldn't you want to play for Jerry Wright, John Calipari, uh, uh, you know, Tom Izzo, uh, Leonard Hamilton? Uh, I mean, there's so many. Uh, that's the thing that really bothers me is people 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 talk about coaches exploiting players. Coaches care about players, man. Coaches want to help guys get somewhere they can't get themselves. Coaches want to impact guys. Well, coaches want to make sure guys are committed academically and they have an opportunity after the ball stops bouncing to be successful. Coaches want kids to come back to school to finish their degrees. Coaches care about everything about that player and, and their families and their well-being. And, and the way that coaches are, are uh, people perceived is so, so wrong. And like, oh, you know, that coach, uh, he, you know, he's exploiting the players. No, I'll tell you he's exploiting players. Agent wannabes are exploiting the players. Convince the kids to come out of school, give up an opportunity for their education, end up telling selling them on a dream that they're going to be pros when they're not pros. Saying, "Well, at worst, you go to Europe. Well, Europe's about productivity, not potential." And you know, especially with the way things are now, and and these agent wannabes are ruining young people's lives, and it's really really sad. Coaches, yeah, coaches want to win, and coaches want to recruit good players, and coaches, you know, make good livings now. Yeah, that's great. They're adults. Right? They're setting an example. They're parenting. They're, they're helping build bridges for those players the rest of their lives to cross, to be successful. But, uh, you know, coach, like, I never in my life looked at as, as a player, as an employee. You know, people say, well, they're employed. No, they're not. 
They're not. And your role as a coach isn't to treat them like an employee. Your role as a coach is to mentor them and coach them and teach them and help them become better you know, fathers and, and husbands and, and, and be successful in life. And, and, and that's so lost because 99.9% .9 of the guys in our business, that is their mission. Right, right. And, and certainly, you know, throughout your coaching career, you know, you've had, you know, an impact on, on your players, um, whether it be uh, as an assistant at Pitt, Virginia, Miami, and then ultimately at Long Beach State, you know, where you uh, got your first head coaching job um, in, in the early 90s. What was it like um, as a young head coach getting to, you know, work with and, and develop um, multiple NBA players at, at a school like Long Beach State and then also um, bringing them to their first NCAA tournament um, in 16 years as your third season as head coach? Yeah, my first year as a head coach, I really sucked. I mean, to be honest, I did a shitty job. I tried to do too much and uh, made the game more difficult. And, uh, probably kind of a little bit overreact to a win or a loss. But as I settled in, uh, you know, I had a great group of players. I had Lucius Harris Bryan, Russell Joaquin Hawkins, James Cotton. I mean, we put a bunch of guys in the NBA. Marlon Wiley was when I was an assistant. We put a bunch of guys in the NBA that were not highly recruited. And it goes back to the same thing. Like, these dudes think that a rating. Let me tell you something. Your high school rating don't mean shit. All right, because you know what? Once you step on a college campus, you have no high school yet. And you've got either you're good enough, you're not good enough. Either you work hard or you don't work hard. Either you're a good teammate or you're not a good team. Uh, so, like, guys get caught up in what's, what's my rating? I really couldn't care. Like, I didn't worry about Brian Russell's rating. He didn't even have a rating. He played 12 years in the NBA. I mean, it's about are you a good teammate? Do you play hard? Do you love the game? Are you going to work on the game? And I had guys that played their tails off. I mean, Joaquin Hawkins ended up playing two or three years for the Rockets, played all overseas and has a youth development program now. I mean, no one played harder than that dude. Rasul Salabuddin from uh, Mount Vernon, New York. Uh, I mean, he could guard anyone in America. So, uh, you know, one of the things with the pandemic is I've done is I've created text chains with all my teams that were as a head coach and stories and the camaraderie. You know, that's what college is about is the relationships. Uh, to see these relationships continue to grow years and years later from those guys is great. But uh, yeah, I was fortunate to coach good players who loved the game and wanted to get better and allowed me to coach them. Like, I mean, I think the big hardest thing is that at times some people don't know the difference between coaching and criticism. Yeah, you can't be demeaning, but you got to be demanding. And uh, I think I've watched practices all over the country. Too many coaches forget about demeaning and demanding. They're not coaching their team. They're afraid to coach their teams. Like you have a responsibility as a head coach to coach your team and help guys get better. And that's the role that you need to embrace. And you can't be demeaning, but you surely have to be demanding. Definitely. And Seth, I want to fast forward a little bit to your head coaching career at Virginia Tech. You know, now you're in the ACC. It's a dogfight every night. Um, what was it like to coach there? Um, are you keeping in touch with a lot of your old players right now as we kind of go through this as a, as a country? Yeah, I, I talk to our guys all the time. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, actually, uh, I did an Instagram Live with Malcolm Lane the other day. We had, had an absolute blast to Bond Gordon from my first Virginia Tech team. Like I, I say, we have these text chains from all three of my different teams separately that I've stayed in touch with guys, you know, basically because of what's going on. And I, I, I have a couple of things that I try to emphasize to all people I speak to in terms of when I speak to the teams. But one, you got to get in a routine right now. And the reason you got to get in a routine 
because you got to have a sense of accomplishment at the end of the day. So I feel I'm trying to get our guys to do make a list the night before they go to sleep of what they want to get accomplished the next day. So as as they go through the day and check off that list, at the end of the day, they can look at the list and they have a feeling of accomplishment. Because if not, let's face it, what day is it? Is it Friday? Is it Thursday? I know the day ends in Y, but I'm not sure what third day is. So if you, if you get keen, then all of a sudden that you, you have an understanding and make a list of things that you need to get done, at the end of the day, you have a better feeling about yourself. Second thing I'm trying to emphasize to all those guys is uh, to, to do something for someone else. You know, have an understanding of gratitude. To pick up the phone, call a, an uncle, an aunt, your former high school coach, a junior college coach, an AAU coach, um, someone to let them know, especially some, an older person if you can, but even your, your friends and teammates, let them know that you were thinking about it. Because, you know, a lot of people, people are isolated. They're on their own. Uh, hearing a friendly voice, hearing someone that, hearing someone cares about them is really, really important. Um, and then the last thing is, is which is so important, is, is you know, be appreciative of, of the people, the selflessness of the people around us. So if you are appreciative of that, then have the discipline to make the right decisions every single day uh, to not put any of your loved ones at risk, your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, or anyone you're in touch with. You make a bad decision, you could impact their lives. So uh, that's what, you know, we're staying in close contact with my guys. Uh, it's important to me. It's good for me. It's healthy for me, quite honestly, uh, you know, in this time. I've got my wife, my youngest daughter, just finished law school. My other two daughters in D.C. We, you know, we can't see our daughters. We can't see my mom who's in New York. who's 93 years old. I mean, so uh, it's ways to just stay connected. But I'll tell you, those two things, creating a routine and making a list of gratitude and touching base with people, trying to touch someone else's life in a positive way, I think that's really important during these times. And that's what I'm trying to get our guys to do. You know, once they're your players, they're always your players. Yeah. It's really valuable advice. I think for, you know, everybody, all, all of our listeners, you know, to get in that routine. Um, I think they'll, they'll all take that home with them. Yeah. I mean, coach, I, I put together a zoom call for my college teammates uh, this past weekend. And, you know, I, I haven't had uh maybe that much fun during the entire quarantine, getting to see guys you haven't talked to in, in a few years and getting to see bases. Um, so I can only imagine, um, you know, speaking of the guys you've been able to coach over the years, um, you know, for the listeners out there, I, I was fortunate enough to meet you uh, right before, you know, traveling to Italy for uh, Adidas Euro camp. Um, we know where you coached the U S select team in 2017, you know, had the opportunity to work with guys like Lugan Stort and Nazir Little who are now NBA rookies, um, what was your favorite part of that whole experience and, and working with those kids? I think the favorite part was I, it blew my mind. Eurocamp in general, the job that Alvin Hall did and how they put it together and how detail-oriented are, how much they care about it, just the total experience, not just the basketball experience, but the total experience for those guys. Uh, I think you know, seeing guys that wanted to get better, like, like me and Nasir Little, I used it as an example. I said he played that first game. We played Slovenia. Uh, and uh, he played to exhaustion. He couldn't play again, I remember. I mean, he had to take IVs. He got sick as a dog. Uh, Lugensdorf dunked so hard in that game, he ripped up his hand. Right. And, and he couldn't play the rest of it. We only played two games because they, they, you know, he couldn't play the next game. But the, the, the quality of the people that were on our team, like you, you were in the big shots. You, know, you were in the path team. <laughs> our team was a group of humble guys that just wanted to get better, that wanted to coach. I, I remember – in that off day, uh, Joe Wieskamp and, and um, 
Brock Cunningham uh, and Jonathan, one of the players, a coach, I want to get some shots up. We went to the outdoor courts in, uh, in Treviso and uh, La Verada and worked for two hours and getting shots up. I mean, that here you have these really good players that they, they, they did want to get coached. They didn't want to get better. They did want to play hard. They did want to allow someone they didn't know except for on television because those guys didn't know me as a coach. They knew me first, you know, probably watching TV. And it, I think the great, best thing is like those guys that I coach, I stay in touch with Sam, uh, with Joey Hauser. I stay in touch with Joey Scamp. I stay in touch with Brock. I stay in touch with David Duke. I mean, all those guys I, I develop relationships with and, and, and you know, David McCormick. And, and that's a pretty cool thing. Uh, it was an incredible experience, and uh, you know, Adidas did a, did, a, did an incredible job. And you know, all the stuff with the FBI. You know, to me, what Adidas was doing there and giving those kids opportunities. You know, now, I didn't agree with the whole path concept. I got to be honest with you; I thought it was bullshit. I said, "No, there's no path to the NBA. You earn your path to the NBA." Uh, and you look; some of those guys have had a more uh, difficult transition. Let's put it that way. Uh, but but the concept of Euro camp and what Albert Hall did and, and and we did a training camp that year we you know man let me tell you some Adidas nations those things were really incredible experiences for me for the players for anyone involved for the, the evaluators I mean that 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 concept was terrific yeah absolutely um, you know and I think by exposing these guys to you know, great coaching like you, yourself, and, and Sam Mitchell at, at an early Love age. Love my man, Mitchell. <laughs> Love Sam. He had some amazing stories while we while we were over there about his time in training camp with the Timberwolves uh, when he was in Italy. Um, but, but you know, by getting to work with guys who, you know, have coached at a high level, um, you know, and, and maybe not have been previously exposed as a player to that, you know, kind of coaching – um, I think, you know, I personally think it's great because they, you know, these guys, these top guys get exposed to, um, you know, hopefully instilling them, themselves with good habits over time that will, you know, carry on to college and, you know, the pro level. Um, with that being said, you know, the NBA is now investing in the, you know, the, the top high school talent uh, with the G League select team. What are your thoughts on that and on that concept? And what do you ultimately think this will do for college basketball? Yeah, I've got mixed emotions. I, I think it's uh, look. I mean, Jalen Green. Or, look, for a kid who doesn't want to go to college, absolutely hates college. Doesn't want to go to college. No one loves college. Let's be honest. But a kid who just really hates college, it's an it, it's an avenue. But here's the deal: those kids have nowhere to go back. To. My concern is they're going to take. All right, so you're going to take one or two kids. Like here, I'll use Isaiah Todd. And I like Isaiah Todd. He's a great kid. He was part of uh, Adidas Nations, actually. All right. What if he's not a pro? What if he's the eighth guy on that team? What if he gets exposed during that thing, right? What happens then? What happens if all of a sudden these, these juniors in high school say, I'm just going to go, I'm going to the NBA Academy, the NBA G League. You know, all of a sudden, maybe they go to 30 teams, 30 players. How many lives are going to be lost? Why are we devaluing education? And that, that's a two-part thing, is it's the NCAA has got to find a way to meet with the NBA because right now I think more lives are going to be impacted in a negative way than a positive way. Not for Jalen Green, but – I mean, you've got the NBA G League right now, Academy, recruiting players right out of their commitments. That's just not right. What, are we, what message are we sending? And, like, the amounts of money that people are talking about, yeah, Jalen's going to make a half million dollars, and that's great. That's a lot of money. But you take taxes out of it, and it's 350 You move to California, you have to have a place to live. you got to eat. you got to have 
car, that, that, that's going to disappear. Now, I think he's going to be a pro for a long time. But what about the kid who gets two and a quarter, 150? In that moment of time, it's a lot of money. What about three years later when they're not in the league? What about if they're the eighth, ninth, or tenth man on that team and they don't play much and they get exposed? What happens then? Now, if a guy goes to college, he's got somewhere to go back to. And people say, well, G League, they're going to have an academic component. It's not going to be mandatory. It's going to be optional. So, like, the last time I checked, if you make going to class optional to a player who thinks he's a pro, the option is going to be he's not going to go to class. So I, I just think we, it, you know, they're rushing it. I'd like to see them respect the kids' commitment and not try to recruit kids right off high school, college campuses. Uh, and then we've got, you know, the NIL is going to happen. The economy is changing. And then we, I've heard rumors, and I, again, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard rumors that there are people telling these kids, well, college basketball is not going to be played. You need to come to the academy now because they're not going to play college basketball. Again, if Dr. Fauci tells me that we're not playing college basketball, that's one thing. But some guy that, or some agent that's trying to recruit a kid to the G League to convince him to talk him out of a, uh, his commitment, I got a problem with. So we'll see what happens. Uh, conceptually, do they have the infrastructure? You're playing 12 games. Now, Matt, you understand 12 games over, over a year. Good luck keeping the team's attention. Right. The stage you're playing on, the contacts you're going to make, the branding. I mean, you play at Kentucky, you play at Duke, you play at Carolina, you play in the ACC, the Big 12, the SEC, the Big 10. Every single night you're on TV, you're, you're building your brand. I'm not sure the G League Academy games are going to actually do a, a real number, if you know what I'm talking about. So we'll see what happens. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and, you know, obviously the, the college game is, 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 is evolving. And one of the things that's, you know, kind of been evolving over the last couple of years is, is uh, the transfer portal. You know, it feels like me and Eric are in the transfer portal. There's so many players in it every year. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And, and, you know, do you think players should be eligible for a one-time transfer right away? First of all, my dog's so tired of me walking him. He's put himself in the transfer portal. So, <laughs> Jake's right here. Jake said, I've had enough of you. I'm taking a nap. I'm going to the transfer portal. You're not feeding me enough and you're walking too much. I have load management. Um, look, I understand players have a right to transfer. Uh, and everyone thinks they're going to find it. The holy grail. Like, like the other day, we saw No Gel Easterns transfer. Right, no Gel Easterns play about 28 minutes a game. No Gel can rebound. He can defend. He's good. Does he think because he's transferring, all of a sudden he's going to find a jump shot? I mean, like sometimes you got to get through some tough times to get to some good times. Uh, you know, the whole idea, the problem with, with transferring in general is the, the, the exceptions, the appeals. It, it's so arbitrary. People don't know, you know, so everyone tries to figure out uh, what appeals got guys eligible immediately. Uh, I think that the transfer portal, it is what it is. It's not going to change. I think that it's um, kids are, are so easily influenced. They get so much static in their ears. Now they can have advisors, which all have agendas. Like, if you're going to transfer, go with something you know, and, and, and make a decision. Listen to the people that have unconditional love. Don't listen to the people that are trying to monetize you. And that, when I, that's exactly what I went back to earlier, where you've got these agents, so agent wannabes, because the real agents aren't going through that NCAA BS to certify underclassmen. They, they're not doing that. The wannabes are doing it, because the real agents, all right, guys are coming to them. So, I mean, the transfer portal is a difficult thing. You know, people say, well, coaches can leave anytime. I've spent like, over half a million dollars paying buyouts when I've changed jobs. So if you want to you go 
apples to apples and say, you know, the kid transfers, he's got to pay back the, the year he spent at another school. Uh, I just think there's going to be so many people trying to grab these kids and manipulate these kids. Like John Calipari, who will benefit more than anyone else from transfer portal, uh, from, from uh, immediate eligibility, right? He's against it. Like, I see guys afraid to coach their teams. Like, adversity is part of the journey. Like, adversity, this is strong, it lives with the weak. If you just continue to build bridges to give guys excuses as opposed to having to fight through it, I, I, I'm concerned about that. And the other thing is, if you look at all the transfer portal, and look, it, it, transfer is right for some people. And sitting out is right because now you're acclimating to the school, the system, your teammates. Uh, you're you're going to actually have a leg up on anyone else that comes in that following you. But here's a, here's a good, good thing for you guys to check out. Look at transfers and look at the percentage of transfers that make it to the NBA. And you'll find out it's minuscule of the number of players that go to the NBA. Transfers don't make it to the NBA. That's just the way it is. And, uh, you know, guys that transfer usually don't go to teams, don't go in the NCAA tournament. I mean, so it's, it's there's a lot, there's a lot to it. I'm not opposed to transfers, uh, uh, you know, and, and I'm not opposed to grad transfers. Because you grad, you, the mission of college is to graduate. But I think that, you know, if you opened up one-time transfer exemption, I think it would be an absolute flag show. Yeah. And, and, and speaking but of that. Mid-majors would be eliminated. Mid-majors would be eliminated. Like, I had a chance to take a mid-major job this past year that we would really put together a good package. And I, I told the AD, I said, here's the deal. I'm going to treat your school as a junior college. I'm going to recruit guys because I, I have the ability to evaluate up. I'm going to develop guys. And I'm telling them, again, two years, you want to go play in the ACC? You want to go play in the Big East? I'll be your biggest proponent. Now, if you want to stay because you want to continue to get better, we'll do that too. But that's what's going to happen. Mid-majors are going to be basically become junior colleges. Yeah. And, and Seth, speaking of the NBA, um, the entire scouting process is going to be changed this year. Obviously, who knows what will happen with the combine pre-draft workouts may not happen. <clears throat> There's some obvious prospects in this draft, Obi Toppin, James Wiseman, Anthony Edwards, Lamella Ball. Who are some of your under the radar guys for the draft this year? And then for the guys that are not drafted and go undrafted, should they be allowed to come back to the college game? I do think they should be able to come back to the college game. I do. And I think if a guy's good enough, you can hold a scholarship for him. Uh, because, I mean, that's just the way it is. It's like most guys don't have 13 guys in scholarship anyway. Even the guys that get old and try to get old and stay old. I mean, if you know you, if there's a good player, there's a chance he could come back, and you know he's probably not going to get drafted, you know, it's worthwhile. Because right now, guys, you know, if, if this transfer thing goes through, everyone's just going to hold two or three scholarships anyway. Like I'm talking to most of the Power Five guys. If the one-time transfer exception goes through, what guys are going to do is they're going to basically have 10 guys on scholarship and hold maybe two or three, two or three for transfers. I mean, that's just, that's just kind of the way things are going to uh, shake out. I wouldn't say sleepers. I love Tyrese Albert. I think he's absolutely terrific. I think, I think the guy has a chance to be a shade, you know, just Alexander type guard, uh, good size, good vision. Got to get it off a little quicker. Uh, can see over the defense, very good in pick and rolls. Uh, I think he's going to be a good player, uh, and and I think he's going to be a winning player, which is is something that's uh, you know to me a little bit uh, a little a little bit un undervalued. Let's put it that way. I think a guy who's going to be in the second round draft choice who's going to end up playing in the league is Nick Richards. 
Uh, I think he's getting better. He can run a floor, he can block shots. Uh, what we call his Steins playing in the NBA for that long period of time for Kentucky. I think that I can see a, an avenue for, for Nick who continues to get better. He's got a great work ethic. He's got a great attitude. Uh, I, I think Sadiq Bay, if he stays in the draft, uh, the Villanova guys, um, they get it. Uh, they're winning, you know, they understand winning. Like we're watching the last dance and, we'll, you know, the one thing we value in the last dance is how much Jordan valued winning, being the guys that want to win. Well, winning cultures are a big part of that. Identity is something you start with in terms of how your team plays, but culture is something that is ingrained in you over time. And, you know, they've got an incredible, incredible culture um, at Villanova, which I think is going to, uh, is going to really be, Really, really be interesting. Uh, but I, I'm a big uh, Sadiq Bay fan. I think he's kind of a multi-positional player with a with a really good feel. Can shoot a little bit better than uh, than people realize. I think uh, I think he's going to be a he's going to be a good player. Uh, Onefa Kangu, I think, will be a, a specialist, but I think he'll I think he's I wouldn't say he's under the radar, but I do like I do like him. I like how hard he plays. I liked it from the first time I saw him at actually at uh, at Beavis Nations when he was playing, uh, you know, with, with with the Ball Brothers. I mean, just the relentlessness of his game, and he knew exactly who he was. I think the guys that understand who they are and how they win individually are so so important when it comes to the draft because the league is a league of role players, and uh, I think that. If you understand that, then you have a better understanding of uh, of the role you could fit in and have success. Absolutely, and I couldn't agree more, Coach, on Nick Richards. I think he made a huge jump this year, and you know can can be a role player right away, a rim runner, you know, guy who can you know clean up in the dunker spot, um, you know, all that good stuff. Um, you know. I know you touched on Dr. Fauci earlier in the in the, our conversation, and we're kind of all waiting to see, you know, what what decisions are made, um, and what you know he advises uh, the country. You know, with the uncertainty that college athletics faces in 2020, um, what role do you think broadcasting is going to play in, in technology in keeping fans connected uh, in the well, college? I think if fans aren't allowed in the arenas for a while. Uh, you know, we're going to be the prison that people watch games through. And, and you think about it, I mean, like, this, even in Kentucky, there's 20,000 people in Kentucky game, but there's, you know, you know, when they play close to a million watching every game. Uh, I think the interesting thing in technology, I had this conversation with one of our vice presidents the other day, are we going to put virtual fans in the crowd? Are we going to have a virtual fan operator where, like, you know, the home team knocks down a three and fans are going crazy? You know? not like a video game because we'd actually have video shots of, of fans, crowd noise, things of that nature to make the game more appealing visually. Um, but I think that's, look, sport, the country wants sport back because it gives them something to rally around. And, and I got, their world's bigger than just sport, but there are so many different sports. Uh, you know, broadcasting, I, I, I just think that uh, the messaging, I just wish that you know, everyone, look, we live, we live in, a, in a debate society. That's like, you know, Jay Will and I texted him this morning. He's so like, you know, the NCAA has a voice. This guy has a voice. I had the players. Yeah, the players have a voice. They can decide to play or not to play. It's real simple. They have a voice. They don't have a say in whether, they, whether the decision is made, but they have a voice. And that's just the way it is. The same thing with, in terms of, uh, you know, 
different areas, uh, you know, what, what different institutions are going to do. You know, I mean, look, we, eventually we need someone in leadership to step up and say, all right, you know, this is where we are. But this is such a big country. And there's so many different climates and there's so many different uh, regions that, you know, you've got to treat each region separately, at least in this moment of time. But we got to remember, it's only May. So we got May, June, July for Oxford, August, September. We got, we got a half a year. Who knows what's going to happen in a half a year? But I, I think it's just as a society, and I'm not a political person. I'm the most least political person in the world. I'm so sick and tired of seeing commercials say we're all in this together. It sounds great, and I agree with it, and I wish we were. But you know what? We're not. It's sad, but we're not. Because both sides of the aisle, every, every, every reporter wants to ask the question that's going to rev that dude up and get a soundbite. Every, 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 the Democrats, the Republicans, everyone want, wants to one-up someone else. Uh, instead of, if we're all in this thing together, because well, we're going to beat this thing, we better be all in this thing together. And I don't mean just our country, but everyone together. Let's take all these brilliant people, which I think we're trying to do, bring, bring them together, network together, uh, use each other's resources so that we can mitigate or find a cure. So that, that's the thing that, that bothers me. We've got to find a way to Stop pointing fingers. There's no blueprint. There's no game plan for any of this. When I was at Virginia Tech, we had a horrific shooting on our campus. All right, my daughter was a student on campus. I mean, there was no blueprint or, or, or game plan to move forward. Well, this is obviously, you know, tragic what's happening every single day. So people stop pointing fingers. All right. You know, if you want to argue, argue behind doors. We've got to have one message and we got to be all in this thing together and, and, and stop everyone trying to have that aha moment. And, and, and I think the media is part of that. And, and we are part of that sir, in terms of just uh, everyone has, has, has an idea because no, everyone's ideas, they don't have to be held accountable for. It's easy to have an idea, but when you have an idea that you're held accountable for, it's a little more difficult. So. Hopefully we can get a positive message. We can, you know, and not be unrealistic, but a positive message. Listen to the medicine, uh, doctors, listen to the researchers, listen to the science, uh, and then just be consistent and, and compassionate and passionate about everything that's going on. No, absolutely. And I know our listeners will appreciate that, that perspective. Um, you know, for, for those out there that are looking to pursue, um, you know, a, a career, um, in you know basketball and um, a similar path to yours um, what would you you know what advice would you give um, to a young up-and-coming college kid that's trying to you know break into the game yeah it's harder it's harder today uh, networking is the key it's not you know I mean I think that's the most important thing you, know, you got to have someone who's potentially can be an advocate for you but I mean you can also just network on your own like my my, my uh, sophomore year of high school I a college I hand wrote about 100 college coaches now I got returns from some. I also had five stars. I had relationships with them, but I think that's really important. Get a chance, you know, go visit college practices. Go visit really good high school practices. Go watch Oak Hill practice if you can. If you're in Florida, go watch Montverde. Go watch. I mean, I, nothing great, better than watching Coach Early, Bob Early's team practice. Um, but try to reach out and and and, and meet people. 
you know, you can get in, sit and watch, uh, you know, through an assistant coach or whatever, get to watch a Kansas and Kentucky, uh, North Carolina, uh, you know, Ron Kruger, his practices are open to anyone. I mean, there are different regions of your country. I think you know, the biggest thing is networking uh, and then finding support systems within your peer group, I think is really important. Uh, like, you know, like I, I have a group of coaches that I grew up with, started coaching when I was uh, my first assistant coaching job. And we, every summer, we would have uh, a two-day think tank together. And we became really, obviously, close friends and we, throughout our careers that we could bounce things off of. But try to create a peer group, try to create a support system for each other. Uh, and now there's so many different ways to connect with people, like all oh, this Zoom stuff that's going on. I mean, it's been it's, that in that way, it's been it's been pretty incredible. But you've got to, you know, find a way to connect with people and build bridges and and, and you know, ask questions. Don't don't give don't act like you're the smartest guy in the room because you're probably not. You know, ask questions and, and try to improve yourself. Seth, a couple of quick hitters for you. I'm sure right, you... Yeah. Quick ones because I got an interview in about five minutes. <laughs> okay. Um, thoughts on the uh, the last dance so far? I know you're, you're watching that like us every right. Sunday. Right. It's a cool. First of all, the access that, 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 that they were able to develop. The storytelling has been unbelievable. Uh, you know, Jordan talking about what he, he had to tell him to cut the other day because he was so emotional about, you know, people thinking he was a little bit of an asshole. Look, winning was important to him. It's just the way it was. Uh, and, you know, leadership is not easy and obviously uh, winning is not easy. And, 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 but I thought it was real and I thought the appreciation was, was real. And I thought that showing uh, the ability of Phil Jackson, you couldn't do that obviously normally, but his ability and his trust uh, in him and Jordan uh, and the relationship they built. I think Jerry Reinstorf was, 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 has been good, but I think that Jerry Krause has been depicted uh, a little bit, uh, Jerry Krause did a really good job. Now, he overstepped his boundary because, you know, one thing about a great GM, unless you're Jerry West or something like that, you do your job. You're not the story, all right? You're the storyteller in a lot of ways, but you're not the story. It's been incredible. It's, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, uh, his competitive spirit, uh, his ability to create a cause. I was big on when I spoke to our team about always creating causes. I mean, Jordan put that shit on steroids. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, how genuine he was and how much he cared about winning and, uh, you know, how much he, how much he cared about every single time he crossed that line that he felt that he, it would, he had a responsibility to compete and play well and, 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 and deliver to the fans. Now smoking the cigars before the game, I don't get, uh, you know, but. Uh, the storytelling in it's, it has been absolutely incredible. So it's it's mesmerizing. And I, and I know you guys had Jeff Van Gundy on your podcast recently. It was interesting to to hear his perspective as well. Yeah, he looked at uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, best shooter you've ever coached and best dunker. Deron Washington, the best dunker, not even close. That is a bad dude right there. He's still playing overseas. I mean, he jumped over uh, Greg Paulus. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, two best shooters, probably Reggie Cohn, who played for me at, at South Florida. He had logo range before it was before it was even uh, fashionable. And I had a guy named Ad Vasayo, who every time he shot the ball, you thought it was going in. And he was incredible. Toughest uh, arena you ever coached at? 
Thomas and Mac, when they had Larry Johnson and those guys, uh, it was really tough because the players, the players made the win. Like I, I, like I wanted, I wanted Fog Allen Fieldhouse. I wanted the Dean Dome, and I wanted at, uh, and I wanted Cameron Indoor Stadium. But I'm, I would say the best venues that I ever coached in, you know, those were some of the best ones. Like I love those environments. Uh, Duke's fans are obnoxious. Uh, Carolina's is a different environment. Um, Kansas, the pageantry of, of Kansas is second to none. It's it's absolutely incredible. The most vicious fans were NC State and Maryland. Uh, so like each each venue is a little bit different. I, I, I've, I've been fortunate to coach in some great places like the Old Pyramid. I went to the Old Pyramid at, at Memphis. Uh, I've been fortunate to win in the Comcast Center, fortunate to win in, in, in the Dean Dome and Cameron and, and Fog. And uh, uh, so, I mean, it's, uh, I, I've been very, very fortunate to be. I won in the old, uh, uh, where Louisville played. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, not alumni hall. Uh, uh, Freedom Hall. So, I mean, I, I've coached in great venues. I mean, I loved coaching. I coached – my favorite place was Madison Square Garden because I was there as a 13-year-old when Willis came out and came out through the tunnel. Tunnel's no longer there. Every time I've ever coached at Madison Square Garden since, quite honestly, I, I walked to where the tunnel used to be, and I just stopped. I was with my dad at that game. It was for the NBA championship, and it's like one of my great memories uh, – I did coach a couple times where I got a chance to walk through that tunnel, and it was really, really cool moments for me. But uh, there's no place I could. Absolutely. Um, two more, real quick for you. Who is the best pickup player in uh, the on campus ESPN games? Uh, I mean, we don't have our on campus, but if it would be, it would be Jay Well. I mean, the dude was two time player of the year. I love my guy. Uh, now, you know, he doesn't have the wheels that he used to have. Lafonso Ellis might be a little, you know, I mean, like Fonz, Fonz before he hurt his knee, but he was hurt also. He had like 15 to 10. If he was playing today, Fonz would be making like 150 million. And, uh, and Seth, if the right opportunity came back along, would you get back into coaching? Yeah, I almost went this past year. Um, it, I'd have to be in line with the athletic director and the president, uh, having, having a shared vision. Uh, uh, you know, the place that I looked at this year was the week the virus began and I just with everything that's going on I just you know I didn't think it was the right time for my family it was actually a good location because my daughters live around there but uh if it, it was the very right situation and someone was ready to hire a 64 year old coach I, I I'm 64 going on 15 uh <laughs> yeah I've got plenty of energy and I'm ready to go but uh I've got look I am very fortunate I work with unbelievable people we all pull in the same direction everyone cares um I, I the culture at espn is absolutely incredible from the producers to directors the people who do our raps the people that do our game day shows i work with the very best of the best not only because they're so talented but more importantly because how good people they are and and that that would be a reason that i you know quite honestly that i haven't gone back because i'm one i'm i don't take for granted the opportunity i've been given and I am incredibly appreciative for the quality of the friendships that I've developed in ESPN. Absolutely. Well, Seth, we really appreciate you coming on the Edge podcast today. You've been an awesome guest. I think our listeners are going to love this episode. 
Um, I know you and Dan Dockage also host a podcast. Do you want to give that a quick plug? Yeah, Courtside, Greenberg and Dockage, better known as the world great, world's greatest podcast. Uh, last week we had Charles Barkley. He was absolutely incredible. We, we have a potential. I want our guest this coming week is going to be another incredible guest. And we just talk ball. It's just two coaches talking ball. Uh, we pull no punches. We have actually real takes from real experiences. And uh, it's fun. That, Dan's, Dan's the best. Awesome. Well, Seth, we appreciate everything. We wish you all the best. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, you guys. we'll catch you next time. Be good, man. Thanks so much, Thank guys. Thanks for listening to The Edge. You can catch us on social media at PlaySight on both Twitter and Instagram. That's at P-L-A-Y-S-I-G-H-T. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you get a chance, please subscribe and rate this podcast. Big thanks to our partners, the Sport Lifestyle Network. We'll catch you next time on The Edge.